0: So this morning we're in another one of those often overlooked minor prophets. It's got a funny name. It's pronounced Habakkuk Habakkuk maybe you think tobacco and but just not tobacco Habakkuk <laughs> so um Habakkuk if you read it you you'll know what I'm talking about uh Habakkuk is a little a little different than most of the other uh minor prophets that we've thought about and the reason is is in a a way similar to what Jonah was so uh, the reason I say this because most of the other prophetic books be it minor or major prophets I'm talking you know like Micah or Isaiah most of the other prophetic books are composed mainly of like just prophetic oracles that the prophet was delivering to the people whomever he was speaking to so just long bits of basically poetry um, <clears throat> a prophetic prophetic utterances that he was preaching of, of coming judgment or, or or something like that, and the, it was the basically that they are it's comprised of the the message that the prophet was delivering to the people. Well, um, that's what you find in most of them. But when you come to Jonah, for example, Jonah was different because his book was more about the man than the message. So instead of the message that Jonah was delivering it was about the prophet himself, the prophet Jonah. And you, you have a little bit of that also in Habakkuk. Um, and not the same exact way, but in a similar way, because it's—it's it's the book, it's only three chapters, it's more or less a simply a conversation, for lack of a better word, between he and God, a prayerful conversation between him and the Lord. And I'm sure the message that the Lord gave to him, he did preach, but in the book itself, it's not presented that way. It's just... It's a, it's a back and forth Habakkuk's prayer to the Lord and the Lord's response to him. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what, that's what we're going to find and what we're going to see. The reason it's like that is because Habakkuk was struggling with understanding um, what the Lord was doing <laughs> and, and, and trying to understand the ways in which God was, was working. And the book is basically the record of his wrestling with the Lord. Uh, and when he doesn't understand what the Lord's doing. And, and in it, and that way, it's, it's, it's relevant. Because I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that kind of situation, but I have. I mean, I've under, I, I've, I have many times found myself wrestling in my heart, wrestling in my mind, wrestling with the Lord. Lord, what are you doing? Maybe it's something that has happened that I don't understand why it happened, or something that I wish would happen that I don't understand why it hasn't happened. You know, and uh, and and Habakkuk, if anything, Habakkuk teaches us how to wrestle with, with the Lord and how to wrestle through things we don't understand, and teaches us how to uh, trust the Lord even when we don't understand. And it's re- it's really really a beautiful book in that way. With the last chapter uh, being uh, written like one of the Psalms, we'll see that when we come to it. It's very much like. One of the Psalms you would read in the book of Psalms. It's it's a beautiful chapter. But like all the prophets we've studied so far, we're going to think about the gospel according to Habakkuk. And uh, we do that because both Jesus and Paul, Jesus twice in in the last chapter of the gospel of Luke, and Paul in the first chapter of Romans, just one example, says that the gospel was preached beforehand to us through the holy prophets in the Old Testament. So in some sense, the gospel, the coming of Christ and the gospel that would be uh, achieved through him was foreshadowed, was promised, was prophesied ahead of time in these prophets. And that's that's the angle we want to take on these things. Um, Same is true here for Habakkuk. Well, who was Habakkuk and when and where did he live? We're going to talk about all that as in addition to the message that he preached. But before we do anything, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our study through his word. Lord, we uh, we recognize that this book we have open before us is is your Word. It's your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary Word. And uh, we recognize that it is it is not just the 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 words of uh, almost forty different men over a period of fifteen hundred years but it's it is your word through those men to us still today and uh, and so we ask your blessing as we come to this study of your word I ask that you would give us minds to understand what we're going to read and study today give us eyes to see the truth that is there give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we do see and to care about what you say is important uh, and then, then thereby have wills from you to obey whatever it may lead us to do. In this, I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, here's how I'm going to want us to sort through this this shorter book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. First, I want to try to get a, an understanding of the setting of the book, uh, who Habakkuk was, when he was, where he was, and I say I say this week after week after week, doing the. When you come to a book like this, before you dive into the message, do a little bit of the hard work. Do, do some of the, the digging to find out um, uh, what the context of this book is. Who was the prophet? When did he live? What was going on at the time that he lived? You can, you can back into a lot of that because of the host historical books that we have, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. You can find out a lot of that, and by doing that, when you do come to the message of the book, it's going to help you immensely to understand what the prophet's talking about and why he's talking about these things in particular. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about that. Then I want us to think through the first major portion of the book and specifically the complaint that, um, that Habakkuk issues to the Lord. In fact, it's actually two complaints. He, he issues the first complaint. The Lord gives him uh, a brief answer. And (laughs) Habakkuk doesn't like it or doesn't understand it, so he complains again. And uh, we'll think through those complaints. Then third, we'll think about the judgment that the Lord assures Habakkuk is coming. He assures him this. This is basically chapter 2. This is his response to Habakkuk's second complaint. We won't cover every detail there. We don't have time, but there's some really noteworthy things in it. Then we'll see in the third and final chapter uh, Habakkuk's response to the Lord. Uh, and then finally, we'll come around and see the gospel as it is foreshadowed here in Habakkuk. There's one particular verse in this brief book that is actually picked up in the New Testament and quoted three times uh, in in three important places in the New Testament. We'll try to think through that. So that's our plan. It's a full slate for sure, but uh, try to move through them fairly quickly. And hopefully, by the end of it, we'll have a good grasp on. This book and how it points us to Christ. So let's think for a second about the setting of Habakkuk. Who was Habakkuk? When was he? Why was he writing? Um, Habakkuk doesn't tell us much at all about who he was. He doesn't offer to us much about himself. Uh, you think about some other uh, of the prophets we've already studied. Jonah is actually mentioned in another place uh, in 2 Kings. Um, and Micah is actually mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. I mean, you have other um they're just talked about or sometimes when they when they open their book they'll say their name and and they that they were prophesying but they'll say where they were prophesying to whom they were prophesying and who was king when they were living or who were kings sometimes two or three kings and through that you can you can know exactly where they were and exactly who was king and what was going on when you come to to um Habakkuk you don't have any of that he doesn't go out of his way to tell you anything about himself i mean all he says in chapter 1 verse 1 is the oracle that habakkuk the prophet saw so we know his name habakkuk we know that he was a prophet that's that's what we know um but anything else that you know about uh habakkuk and the time in which he lived isn't isn't gained through him offering particulars about himself but but it's gotten through reasoning uh through things he says later in the, in, the, in the book. I should give you an example, the biggest example, the biggest clue to understand the background is found in the first chapter in verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> look there. God says, this is God's first uh, response to Habakkuk's first complaint that we'll think about in a minute. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe in if told by the way i don't want to see that verse on anybody's instagram or uh don't get it airbrushed on your beach t-shirt i mean like because i've seen people quote that going like god's going to do something awesome he's just astounded like something but this is a terrible verse like this is the 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 thing that's going to astound you is the awful thing that's coming so Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, we'll come back to this in just a minute um, to say more about it. But at the very least, as far as the background of Habakkuk goes, these verses put somewhat of a time stamp on it. On, on when, it, was, when it, was, it tells us where he lived, also when, because... Uh, First of all, it tells us that he lived, and it basically tells us he lived and prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you've been here, you know we've we've talked about this distinction between the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The nation had split after David and Solomon. We know that he that Habakkuk prophesied in the in the southern kingdom through this because by the time the it says God is raising up the Chaldeans, by the time we know historically, by the time the Lord raised up the Chaldeans. to, to do anything, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed 80 or 100 years earlier by the Assyrian Empire before the Chaldeans were really on the scene to do anything. Uh, they had been conquered by the Assyrians, and the Chaldeans were about to overthrow the Assyrians. So we know that he's not northern kingdom. He must be southern kingdom, uh, Judah. Based on what he says here, but but when was it? And and same same verses. This time there's a fairly precise timestamp on it. It says it was during a time he lived during a time where God was about to raise up the Chaldeans. He says, "I am raising up the this the Chaldeans, this bitter uh, and hasty nation." And it says in verse five, "I'm doing a work in your days." So it's it's on the cusp of God raising up the Chaldeans uh, to do something. This was it was about to happen. It was about to happen, so right on the cusp. Well, not to bore you to death with, with historical uh, tidbits, but we need it to get to the background of what's going on here and what he's talking about. We know from historical records that the Chaldeans, they, were, they, they arose from within the Assyrian Empire, and they started chipping away at the Assyrian Empire. That's how they took over. So they first took over the city of Babylon. So remember this? Remember from... Jonah, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, was what? Do you know? Crickets. Nineveh. Nineveh. Remember, Jonah was sent to Nineveh. That was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Well, another major city within that empire was Babylon, right? And the Chaldeans took over the city of Babylon, not the capital city, but a major city, in 626 B.C., 14 years later, they kept advancing 14 years later, and in 612 B.C., they overtook Nineveh. They took the capital city. And, and therefore, that was the fall of the Assyrian Empire, and now the Chaldeans were on the scene. They were the people in 612, and in 586, they are the ones who overthrew Judah and sent them off into exile. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. Okay. Well, um, it said, if that, if knowing those things... If, if, if we're told here in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 that God was about to raise up these Chaldeans and it was going to happen in their days, that it, it, you reason from that that this must have happened in the years just prior to 626 when they overthrew Babylon, right? And if that's true, if it's in the years just prior to 626, then that tells you that who was king in Judah during those days was probably the early years of King Josiah early years of King Josiah, um, who was a great, great king in Judah, like probably the greatest king in Judah since the days of David. Great, great king. Well, if you know that, I mean, you can read about him in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, but if you know that, then you, you come to read this and you go, he's talking about violence in Judah? He's talking about disregard of the law the law is paralyzed and it's just a wicked wicked time and place in judah uh how do you square that with this great great king of josiah how do you square that well two things about josiah uh second kings 22 one tells us that josiah was only eight years old when he became king eight um and so i doubt eight-year-old josiah was pushing a great many reforms in the kingdom at eight. I mean, I, ha- I have kids in that neighborhood. The reforms they push are not good ones. Um, and second of all, <clears throat> not only was he eight years old, but his grandfather was King Manasseh. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather, and he was an incredibly evil and wicked king in Judah. Uh, and here's just one description of, of Manasseh. Josiah's grandfather in 2 Kings 21. It says, and he built altars in the house of the Lord. So in the temple itself built altars of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, will I put in my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. We're, We're talking about Child sacrifice in the temple. That's what's going on in the days of Manasseh. He burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Another thing about Manasseh, he reigned for 55 years. 55 years. That's enough time for some stuff to get ingrained in a culture. You know, and this kind of wickedness getting ingrained in a culture, and not only that, but, um, but uh, Manasseh's son Josiah's father Ammon didn't undo anything, and he only reigned for two years before Josiah, the eight-year-old, becomes king. Okay, and so even though it was during the early days of Josiah, all of these things that took place under Manasseh were probably still fully in place in the culture. And it was a wicked, wicked place. Um, A time in which Habakkuk lived. He would have been a contemporary, therefore, though, of Jeremiah and a contemporary of probably Nahum that we talked about last week. So that's the setting that Habakkuk lived in and prophesied, which is why it, it was a really wicked time. Not Josiah's fault, but really Manasseh's fault, his grandfather. It's not surprising that he opens his letter, though, with a complaint. Um, to the Lord, complaining to the Lord about the wickedness among His own people. Look at verses two through four of chapter one. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will You not hear? Or, or cry to You violence, and You will not save? Why do You make me see iniquity, and why do You idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And justice goes forth perverted. That's, that's his prayer to the Lord. Um, and uh, no doubt Habakkuk was alive at the end of Manasseh's reign and early in Josiah's. When wickedness like we saw earlier was happening. And Habakkuk is not, just, he's, in this prayer, Habakkuk's not just trying to bring this to the Lord's attention as if he thinks the Lord doesn't know. He isn't just praying, Lord, would you do something? That's not what he's praying. If you read it carefully, it's not what he's praying. He's complaining to the Lord. I mean, because he, he knows the Lord knows. <laughs> he knows the Lord knows the wickedness uh, that, that's happening, and, and it seems to him that the Lord is choosing not to do something. Habakkuk knows that it's God's own law that's being broken. And not just in minor ways, but idols being worshipped in the temple and children being sacrificed in the temple. Where, where we saw in 2 Kings 21, it says, where God had said, my name will dwell here. So why doesn't God care? That's, that's, that's Habakkuk's point. Violence running rampant. And so, and so Habakkuk says, why do you idly look at wrong? Why aren't you doing anything, God? No doubt, he, like I said earlier, he's not the only one who's thought something like this. Maybe not about the same exact thing, but most of us at one time or another have had times where we, like I said, haven't understood why the Lord allowed something to happen or has not chosen for something to happen. And and especially when it when we've prayed about something that wasn't just something i wished to happen but seemed to be in accordance with his word and um and the lord didn't seem to answer our prayers if the bible does anything if the bible does anything it teaches us how to pray to the lord and it teaches us how to be real in doing that um how to be real with the lord in our prayers habakkuk's praying like we see in a lot of the psalms and and he's 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 just pouring his frustrated heart out to the Lord, I will say. And it's okay that he's doing that, but, but do notice that he's not doing that uh, in a lack of faith, but actually in a way that's full of faith. Like he's, he's doing this, he's confused precisely because he has faith in the Lord. Right? That's why he's frustrated. He knows that the Lord sees, and he knows the Lord cares, which is why he doesn't understand it doesn't appear that way. And the Lord gives him an answer. He prays and he says, Lord, I'm just telling you this. Please give me a clue as to why. And the Lord gives him one. And it's, but it's not what he expects. The Lord gives his response in verses 5 through 11. We've already looked at verses 5 and 6 where he says, Be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans to come and, uh, and judge Judah. In other words, he's telling Habakkuk that, Yeah, I've seen this violence that you're talking about. I've seen this wickedness and this this evil that you're talking about. And I'm bringing a judgment that will happen in your days. And it's the Chaldeans that he's raising up for that purpose. But look how he describes the Chaldeans. In verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. In verse 9, they all come for violence and gather captives like sand. Verse 11, Uh, Their own might is their God. That's the end of verse 11. If Judah was wicked, the Chaldeans were more so. Uh, Which is why the remainder of chapter 1 is is Habakkuk complaining again. Because the Lord does answer his first complaint. But when he hears God's answer, it seems to him like the solution is way worse than than the initial problem. That ought to teach you one thing. Not that God is evil, but we don't always understand what God is doing. We don't understand His ways. So sometimes, if you don't understand what the Lord is up to, if you have a situation that you're praying for, praying about, you want God's wisdom on, want to know why, God doesn't tell you why, that might be a good thing. Because when, when Habakkuk was told why, he was like, what? And did not, did not understand. That's worse, you know. Uh, that's worse than not knowing. Uh, because because he, and, and he doesn't understand how could you use a people that is more wicked than Judah to judge the wickedness of Judah. That doesn't make any sense. He says in verse 12, he says, I understand that you've ordained them as a judgment understand how he says in verse 13 you who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong he knows that god is holy and impure how do you do this god in verse 14 he acknowledges that his trust that god isn't just he isn't just holy he's sovereign and sovereign over peoples and nations and he reminds god hey god you're sovereign over this people can I remind you something about this, people? He says in verse 15, he says, Let me remind you what the Chaldeans are like when they take over a people. He says, He, and this is like when he says He, uh, it's, a, it, it's a, he's personified the Chaldeans like they're a man. He, the Chaldean, he brings all of them up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is. Glad, he says they conquer people so quickly and violently that it's like, there's like a fisherman catching a load of fish in their net. Um, and it's it's a sobering play on words when he says here that he drags. Uh, when he says he brings them, he brings all of them up with a hook, with a hook, because tradition holds that often when the Chaldeans would conquer a people, uh, as a show of their conquering ability and their strength and to strike fear in all the people um, they would parade some of their conquered peoples through the streets and they would be strung together uh, with hooks through their nose or through their lips and, and march them through the streets strung together with these hooks it's a play on words there when he says he brings them all up with a hook, drags them out with his net. So you can imagine Habakkuk Remembered God's first answer back in verse five, and he says, Yeah, when you said I would see and wonder and be astounded, that is for dang sure. Um, like it's it's worse that worse than than I could have ever imagined. Wonder and be surrounded, that's exactly what he was. And as he thought more about the Chaldeans, he thought that they, they seemed to be ruthlessly wicked without any kind of consequences. He says in verse sixteen, that they seem to live in luxury. And have nothing but success. And he wonders in verse 17 uh, to the Lord about the Chaldeans. He says, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercil- mercilessly killing nations forever? I mean, you're, you're using them to judge us, but they are more wicked than us. Or, and but they seem to be doing just fine. Are you not going to judge them? How can you judge us and not judge them? That's what he's saying. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says basically, all right, there's my complaint. I'm just going to wait and see what you say. So even Habakkuk, the prophet, didn't always understand what the Lord was trying to do. He knew and he believed what the Scriptures said about the Lord and uh, and that, that God was holy and pure and righteous and good and sovereign. And it was precisely because of that, that when he looked around, what was happening among his own people and in the world, it, it didn't make any sense at all to him. And he wanted to know how to understand it and also to take his frustrations to the Lord. Contrast, I know I brought Jonah up a couple times, another fitting comparison here. Contrast what Habakkuk is doing here versus what Jonah did back in his day when we studied that book. When jonah If you will remember back to Jonah, when Jonah was angry with the Lord and fleeing from the Lord, Who did he tell about it? Anybody he could find. (laughs) Uh, Jonah 1.10 says about the pagan fisherman that he hopped a boat with. The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So basically he was mad at God, and he was just telling everybody he could think uh, meet about how mad he was at God and basically try to bring them along with him in his anger. But when Habakkuk was angry with the Lord, who did he tell about it? the lord (laughs) he prayed to the lord and he stands in a long line habakkuk stands in a long line of godly men and prophets who do the same thing i mean we don't have time to go through all of it but just high watermark people like moses and elijah both issued please just kill me now prayers to the lord Uh, and the lord never faults habakkuk in this book for taking his frustrations To the Lord, or about the Lord, to the Lord, (laughs) he doesn't. He doesn't say you're doing wrong by being frustrated. He didn't take his frustration, but he didn't. He wasn't taking his frustrations to the Lord with a hard heart, but with a heart eager to understand and eager to believe. God knew that, so in time, we're not told how long it took. We're not told how long it took for these answers to come. Could have been a long time, for all we know. But he answered again a second time with the judgment that he was bringing. Uh, About again, he would judge the the Chaldeans. uh, And he explains that to him. This explanation comes basically all of chapter 2. First he addresses Habakkuk, though, in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. The his here is still the personified Chaldean. It's the Chaldean whose soul is puffed up and, who, and, it, and it's not upright within him. So contrasted with the arrogant Chaldeans, he says at the end of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now that's the verse that's going to be quoted three times in the New Testament. We'll come back to that. But the Lord is telling Habakkuk here that he's going he's gonna to make what he's about to do very plain to him, and it will come to pass in the Lord's timing. If it ever seems slow or like it's not going to happen, just keep waiting, it's going to happen. And, and he's, basically telling, he's basically telling Habakkuk, before he, before he tells Habakkuk what he's going to do, he's basically saying, Habakkuk, what are you going to do now? When I, if I tell you, how are you going to respond? Um, even though the, the Chaldeans are puffed up and proud, even though you can't see a way out, I'm about to tell you what I'm going to do. But when I tell you, what are you going to do in the meantime? And he tells here, I'm going to tell you what you, you should do. The righteous will live by faith. Okay? What does, it mean, what does that mean here? The righteous will live by faith. Live by faith has two important senses here. Two important senses to live by faith here. First, it, it, the most basic is trust the Lord. Trust me. I'm about to tell you what I'm going to do. But before I say it, trust me. Trust me. Even if you don't understand and you grow impatient, trust the Lord. Trust Him. That's the first meaning. Live by faith is trust Him. Trust His Word. Trust His character. What's, what's the other by live by faith? is. Now that you trust Him, continue in faithfulness. Continue in faithfulness. Keep doing what the Lord has said is right, and keep pursuing obedience. So so even when you don't understand, trust Him that He does understand and He's good, and just keep walking in obedience, even if you don't fully understand. That's what he tells Habakkuk. But the rest of the chapter then explains God's ultimate purpose which is to bring a judgment also against the Chaldeans. He's going to use the Chaldeans to judge Judah, and then he's going to judge the Chaldeans. <laughs> uh, yeah. And here, and it does this in a series of five woes. Like, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. Five times. We don't have time to, to look at all of this with a fine tooth comb, but let me just take, break it down this way. These five woes, the first two woes, Woe one and woe two. Show, God is showing Habakkuk that the evil that the Chaldeans are doing with, with seemingly, seemingly unceasing success and victory and luxury, that's only appearance. The evil that they are doing will actually work to their own self-destruction. That's, that's the first two woes. He says it, the woe begins in verse 6, but it says in verse 8, to the Chaldeans, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. So the plunderer gets plundered. like it will, It's sowing their own um, self-destruction. As you do, Chaldean, as you do and as you have done, so it will be done to you by another. And then in the second woe, uh, verse 9, he says that it will ultimately end in their shame. That's another seed of self-destruction. What you think is your glory will ultimately be your your shame. So the first two woes show that the evil we choose to do is always self-destructive. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Sin may, be, may bring pleasure for a time, but you're sowing your own self-destruction. It's not just you, me too. That, there's five woes, though. That's the first two. Don't, don't worry, Habakkuk. The, the evil that they do, they're destroying themselves. But then the, the, the last three, the final three, three, four, and five. The final three show more of how God will actively work and judge the Chaldeans. Just like He did Judah. The third woe, beginning in verse 12, talks about how they have built, the Chaldeans have built towns with, with blood and with iniquity, trying to make a name for themselves, but God says in verse 14, He will intervene and He will get glory over them. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the Waters cover the sea. In the fourth woe, beginning in verse 15, the Lord reiterates that they will ultimately be ashamed of their evil, and not just because it will self-destruct in that way, but God will make it happen. He says in verse 16, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. God will judge the Chaldeans for sure. And then the final woe start. It's stated in verse 19, but actually starts in verse 18. There's a good play on words there in that final woe. Uh, Look how in verse 18, he talks about how he judges them for their idolatry. He talks about the idols they make and worship, and he calls these idols speechless. And in contrast, verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Idols are merely work. Basically, what he's saying: idols are merely the works of our hands, and they're speechless. But we are the work of the hands of the Lord. We're to be speechless and silent before Him, and before His holy and sovereign wisdom and goodness. Live by faith, trust Him, and continue to walk in faithful obedience. That's basically what you do with this. That's what He says. Don't believe the the Lord will do only what you can understand or foresee. And in the end, we'll see and know that he was right and he was good. And if we complain before, we'll keep silence on that day. And, and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the, the earth. Well, what is, what is Habakkuk's response? Well, how does Habakkuk respond to this judgment? How does he respond now? Does he complain yet again? This is chapter 3. This is, this is the rest of the book. It, it, it's his response. We don't have time to look at it verse by verse. I just want to give you a flavor, though of um this ending uh it, chapter three is actually written in uh in the style of a psalm I don't, if you read it you might have noticed this it it uh it appears to have been written a little later after some reflection and then when it was written it was in the form of a psalm just notice these things it says in verse one a prayer of habakkuk the prophet according to shiganoth which i don't know what that means but it's, it's in the Psalms. It's probably a musical term, you know. Um, and then three times in verse 3, and then in verse 9, and then in verse 13, all three of those verses end with Selah, just like you see in the Psalms. And then at the very end, <laughs> the last words of the book to the choir master with stringed instruments. So it was to be sung like the Psalms. So this, this whatever... We find in chapter three this well thought through response that the Lord intended to, it, through Habakkuk, was to be sung and remembered by the faithful. A couple of things about it. Most of the chapter we won't read it all. Most of the chapter is is filled with Habakkuk's conviction that the Lord will fulfill His word, like He, and and no one or nothing can stop Him from fulfilling His word. It's a, it's it's in a sense it's what. When you read Daniel, when God made Nebuchadnezzar go crazy for a little time period, when he brought him back to his senses, it's the same confession that that Nebuchadnezzar makes. None can stay his hand. God will do what he says he will do, right? And he will bring his judgment on the Chaldeans. So at the outset, Habakkuk simply asks of the Lord at the very end of of verse 2, In wrath, remember mercy. Please, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. As I seek to be faithful, as you've asked me to be, as any of the other righteous in the land aim to be faithful, in your wrath please remember mercy. And then he ends it in verses 16 through 19 in settled faith and trust. He says at the, end of verse, at the end of verse 16, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I'll quietly wait. But so he's now convinced that God's sovereign sending of the Chaldeans, what he's been convinced of is this, that God's sovereign sending of the Chaldeans against, the, against Judah is not because he approves of the Chaldeans, but because he disapproves of Judah. And he will judge the Chaldeans and do what is right. And then in verses 17 and 18, he says that he will trust in the Lord and in his word, even when everything around him tempts, tempts him to doubt. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And then he finishes out in verse 19. He's convinced of the good character of God and he's promised God has promised to save those who trust him and are faithful to him. And so no matter what else, Habakkuk says, he will choose faithfulness. He will wait for the Lord's salvation. And that brings us to the last point quickly, which is where we see the gospel in Habakkuk's prophecy. We've, we've walked our way through these three chapters. And really, the gospel is prepared for and, and, and foreseen uh, in in. In just really, most clearly, in one verse earlier in the book. It's actually the end of chapter 2, verse 4. The very last phrase of chapter 2, verse 4, where he tells Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by his faith. The reason we see that, the way we know that that's the gospel hinted at ahead of time is like I said earlier, because the New Testament takes that and quotes it three different occasions. Paul twice and the author of Hebrews once. So Paul says in Romans chapter one verses sixteen and seventeen, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what he quotes. He quotes back there. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk again. And then, we, last year we studied through uh, Hebrews. And what we saw then, and we'll see again right now, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 through 38, or at least the first part of 38, For he says to the struggling believers, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. I think that all three of those passages, Romans 1, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10, all three of those give the full sense of what God was saying through Habakkuk on that day when he said, but the righteous shall live by faith. Because do you remember I told you that when God told Habakkuk that, the righteous shall live by faith, that it had two senses. It had two senses to live by faith. One, it meant, first of all, trust the Lord. Trust Him. And the second was, continue in that faithfulness. And these three passages in the New Testament bear that out. As Paul says, those who are saved in Christ are not those who work and work and try to please God by their good actions and their good works and avoiding the bad and doing the good. It's not that. Those who are saved are those who simply trust the Lord and His promise. Trust Him. When God says that He will save those who repent and believe in the work that Jesus has done for them, we are saved by trusting that promise. And trusting it. Right? That's what He says here. But then the author of Hebrews comes along and says, and that is true, and those those who make it safely to the end are those who will continue in faithfulness, just like it means in Habakkuk, those who continue in that faithfulness through all kinds of adversities, through all kinds of temptations and hardships that we read about in Hebrews. Not those who are working for their salvation, but those who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. So the New Testament, will reveal to us the Savior in whom to put our faith and trust. But through Habakkuk, 650 years ahead of time, we're given a clear picture of what that faith looks like.